Before you sit, let's bow our heads in prayer. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord God, we ask you to speak to our hearts this morning, according to our need, according to your purposes. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like to start by wishing you all a very blessed Timket. Now, in this erudite congregation, there might perhaps be somebody who can tell me what Timket is. I might be making it up otherwise, but you can check it on Google later. Yes? Well done. We have a learned scholar over there. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church is the the only ancient African church, and it's developed its own traditions and its own ways of doing things. And one of the biggest festivals in the calendar is today and is the celebration of the baptism of Jesus. It is up there with Christmas and with Easter. We don't even notice it, do we? We just sang this tremendous hymn that starts off going through major points in, um, in Jesus' life and then goes on to all the rest, doesn't mention the baptism, we tend not to think about it. And yet, in the Ethiopian Orthodox tradition, this is one of the big days. You can look it up on Google if you don't believe me. And they do all kinds of interesting and eccentric things. And what do they do that for? Um, so we have this event, which we read about this morning. Well done, Christine. Heroic reading. Um, We have this event that happened, seen as of massive importance and worth celebrating and highlighting in the church here in one tradition, and never thought about in our own. When you think about it, it was a pretty spectacular event. Jesus is baptised, he's praying, the heavens open! Well, that doesn't happen very often. I mean, that's pretty spectacular. Echoes of, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, the heavens were torn open. I don't know what it looked like, but that's something pretty special. The Holy Spirit descended in physical form as a dove. Has such a thing ever happened before or since? Not to my knowledge. That's that's a pretty extraordinary thing. The voice of God was heard speaking. And that's also quite an unusual... I mean, this is quite a day, isn't it? Um, there are other moments recorded in Scripture where the voice of God was heard, but there aren't very many of them. There are individuals who have a personal experience of hearing God audibly, but this, by all accounts, is a pretty mega event, all those things happening. So you can see how it could become the basis of a major festival. It's also a very Trinitarian event and a very Trinitarian passage. We've got the Father speaking from heaven, Affirming the Son. <clears throat> affirming the Son. You have the Holy Spirit there, and you have Jesus, the man, praying to God. And that alone has got theologians discussing it for centuries. And we're not going to try and expound all the Trinitarian implications this morning, because time does not permit. We're going to take it from the other angle. And uh, this, this event is recorded in uh, all four Gospels. Luke downplays it the most in a way. He comes at it from the most sort of human point of view. We start off with 
as all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. He just slips him in. So there are the crowds coming, and Jesus comes as one of the crowd. Not particularly noticed. No fanfare. No following. He was one of the crowd. He goes on to say, having skipped through these mighty events, he was thought to be the son of Joseph, the son of the son of the son of 77 names, the majority of which are totally unknown. You can't do a Bible study on most of them. Nobody knows who they are. Nothing is known about them. Jesus, one of the crowd. Jesus descended from blah, 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 and a few names that we know about. All the way back to Adam. Jesus, one of us, descendant of Adam. And Luke introduces him. He brings John the Baptist in with a huge fanfare and political events and John's thunderous preaching. But he introduced Jesus in his adult life as emerging out of the crowd. Jesus the man. We read in Luke's Gospel about his birth. We read about something that happened when he was 12 years old. And the first statement we have about his adult life is him emerging from the crowd. What had he been doing for the last 18 years? The Bible doesn't tell us, but we know. I'll tell you what he was doing. He was working with his hands. He was getting tired. He was needing to rest. He slept. He got hungry. He ate. He got thirsty. He drank. He was a neighbour to people. He was a cousin. He was an uncle. He was a son. He was a member of his community. And he lived an ordinary life. He lived like us. The clothing was different, the weather was different, the technology was different, but essentially he lived a life like ours. It's only the superficial things that have changed. He lived as a human being amongst human beings and did not stand out. Well, we have no idea what his immediate neighbours thought of him, but he didn't attract any special wider attention. He didn't have any acclaim. He wasn't at all famous. He lived in a small place amongst ordinary people whose names we do not even know. And we are so used to focusing on Christ as the supernatural divine being that we often forget the very uh, real truth that he was human, that he lived a human life. Of course, the baptism was the turning point. And what a turning point it was. The heavens rent open, the spirit descending, the voice of God speaking out, you are my son. That's quite an entrance. And before long, he's being followed by huge, unmanageable crowds. He's going around healing people, not of mild aches and, and, and slight un, you know, discomfort in the throat, but blind people and deaf people and dumb people and lame people. He raises the dead. When he finds an evil presence in people, he banishes it, he confronts it. Um, he performs astonishing feats, turns water into wine. He walks on the water. He stills the storm. He feeds 5,000 hungry people. He confronts the religious zealots and hypocrites. He confronts the religious leaders who are corrupt. And eyes wide open, he goes to the cross and hands himself over as a sacrifice. He lays himself down for us. 
He is buried. He is raised again to new life. He ascends to the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father. What a career. Turning point was the baptism. But you know, here's the funny thing. He was still subject to hunger. And in fact, the very next episode, he's in the desert, fasting, feeling hungry, feeling weakness. And as you go through the accounts of his life, of his ministry, when he's doing all these powerful and supernatural things, you can find moments where he is thirsty, where he is weary, where he is so tired he just falls asleep. You find moments when he is frustrated, when he's vexed, when he's grieved, when he's pained. Jesus wept. And what this shows us is that um, there is no contradiction between being human and walking in the power of God. Jesus still had the same physical makeup. He still had the same emotional makeup that we have. He was still one of us. You know, you get these, all these superheroes these days. And some of them, they're the mild-mannered, calm, you know, chap wandering along that nobody notices. And suddenly they're transformed. And they're invincible. And they're invulnerable. And bullets bounce off them and all the rest of it. Jesus wasn't like that. There was a turning point, but he did not lose any of his vulnerabilities, any of those things that we identify with. That, just the physical facts of being tired, of being strained, of, of having our patience stretched. And uh, it's an interesting study to do, to go through and examine the hints at the emotional life of Jesus. He was still like us, but he did extraordinary things. How did Jesus of Nazareth, the man do those extraordinary things. Well, the passage gives us three things. Jesus prayed. Jesus was filled and empowered by the Spirit. Jesus knew that he was a child of God and loved. Three things. Three things that are all available to us too. Jesus prayed. And... It's clear from, from reading the stories that prayer was, it was a private prayer, was very much a part of his life. He also took part in public prayer. Um, we find him particularly praying at important moments, decision-making moments, seeking guidance. He tells Peter, who is about to go through a great trauma, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. He said to his disciples, you see all these needy people? Pray! Pray that the Lord will send out laborers into his harvest. As he approached the cross, he prayed. When he was on the cross, he prayed. He taught people, pray for those that ill-treat you. And on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. Prayer was such um, a feature of his life. I don't know if it's just me. And maybe you would like to do some intergenerational discussions on this. <clears throat> I have the impression that prayer is not as big a part of today's Christian's life as it used to be. And it would be interesting just to compare notes, those who have longer memories, those who have shorter memories. Not as a, a big guilt trip thing. I mean, one of the easiest ways to guilt trip, 
guilt-trip Christians is to go on about prayer, but more to come at it that, look, this is something that God intends us to do and to benefit from, to talk to the Father. And I think what is true is that every one of us needs to revisit from time to time how we pray, why we pray, because it feels different, it is different, the needs are different at different stages of life and different circumstances. But prayer is such a tremendous thing, and it was one of the features of the life of Jesus and the, the effectiveness of his ministry. Jesus, the man, was able to do what he did to walk the path that was set before him because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, if I asked you to write down in a sentence, why did Jesus come, you would all come up with something. But as a rule, we don't come up with this one. <clears throat> Jesus came so that believers could be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what John the Baptist preached. He said, the one coming after me will baptise you in the Spirit. He didn't mention all the other things. He didn't mention the cross, the resurrection, at least not as far as we have recorded. And this is one of the main threads running through the Gospel. Why did he do all those things for us? So that there would be a people filled with the Spirit the way the prophets were in the past. And he says, he has a nerve to say uh, in John's Gospel, unless I go away, the Holy Spirit will not come. It is better for you that I go. And Peter, at the beginning of Acts, says, Jesus has been lifted up to the, the, the right hand of, of the Father, and he has poured out upon us the Holy Spirit, for young and old, for male and female, a new age in which believers live and work in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's God's intention that we too live in that fullness. Now, that doesn't mean to, that we should run around with the idea that all right, we get our theology right, we get our emphasis right, and then we'll all be going around doing supernatural things and all be doing uh, fancy and dramatic things. Um, the tendency of human beings to immediately latch onto the idea, idea of power and run after it is very strong. The very next thing that happened to Jesus was into the desert and tempted precisely in the area of how he uses power and status. <clears throat> We may not all have the same dramatic experiences, and there's no reason why we should. But if we're walking in the Spirit, we will have dramatic moments, that's for sure. And on the other side of the coin, let nobody ever convince you that the Holy Spirit is just there to make you nice and bland. The Holy Spirit is a bit scary, a bit unpredictable and glorious. We should not walk around thinking we have the right to make all sorts of things happen, but on the other hand, we should never think that anything is impossible. The Holy Spirit is given so that we can walk the path that God has for us. That's different for each one. But it means there aren't any I can't do in there. Praise God. Jesus of Nazareth was able to do what he was given to do because he knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was a son and that he was loved. Uh, Paul talks in Romans about he was to be the first of many brothers, and we shall add sisters to be more up to date. Brethren, you're all included. Um, John the Apostle, at the beginning of his Gospel, says, and to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of any human mechanism, but by the will of God. Again, it's a fundamental uh, thread of the gospel. Jesus came that we should live 
and know ourselves as children of God, knowing that we are loved. It is God's intention and purpose that we have that written on our hearts, that we have that affirmed. And so many of the, the hesitations and the anxieties and the what-ifs and the but-ifs and all the things that, that muddle us up are resolved when we know that truth, when we live in that truth. I'm sure there are many reasons to come to church and do church activities. One of them is to remind ourselves and be affirmed in who we are in Christ, what God has brought about through Christ, what it means to follow him. And we share, potentially share, in this knowledge he had of being loved as a child of God, one that God is committed to as father, one who can call on God as father. God became man, emptying, emptying himself such that he could really live as an ordinary person like us. God became man to start a movement of mere human beings, a movement that is still growing and expanding, meeting fresh challenges every generation, made up of people who know about prayer, who are enabled by the Spirit, who know they are loved by God and can do great things. Some individuals do absolutely extraordinary things. Some are martyred. All follow Christ. It's my great privilege to, um, to work in Chad, as I have been for over 20 years now. And uh, one of the things that is most precious to me is um, knowing a man called Ahmed Jibreen. And uh, he is a man from a Muslim background. He was raised as a Muslim in a very, very close Muslim community. And uh, I knew him before he became a Christian. I saw him through that early stage. He became a leader of a small group. It was the first group of publicly known Christians. And they went through persecution. Some of them were beaten. They were threatened. They were disowned by the whole town. Uh, it was quite dramatic events. And Ahmed especially... He emerged as the leader, and it was just wonderful to see how God taught him and enabled him to answer people graciously, how he developed into a pastor. And although he doesn't have the training of so many other pastors that you meet in Chad, he just preaches these brilliant sermons for people. And it's a real privilege to know him. I took part in his baptism. Uh, and it's wonderful to be with him and recognize things. Ah, oh, yes, I remember when he learned that. Um, and he's, he's become a beacon for his community. In the place that they used to threaten to kill him, they have made him a neighborhood chief. There's an administrative system where every neighborhood has to have an official who's chosen by the citizens. And he is that man. And he gets called up to appear uh, before the town authorities as a member uh, of the, you know, as a representative of his, his neighborhood. Uh, he even gets called up to the Islamic Council, which you know, deals all the religious matters, and they call in all the neighborhood chiefs, they're all supposed to be Muslims, and there's him, well known as a Christian leader. And it rather unsettles them. And he's a beacon to the whole community. Every foreign visitor that, that meets him is always impressed. What most people don't know is that the first uh, Chadian who witnessed to him, the first person who spoke to him about Christ, was a man called uh, Gudja Joel. 
And he was an ordinary soldier. And he doesn't have a public ministry. He's not known by anybody. I happen to have known him right at the beginning. And he's completely disappeared back into obscurity. On the one hand, you have this heroic beacon of a figure. On the other, you have this man who played his part and was never noticed. And there is a whole spectrum of ways in which God uses us in his purpose through this world. I'm going to ask you three questions for you to think about, take away, maybe discuss over lunch. I'm also going to give you the answer. Who is going to who is going to live out the gospel to a generation that is being raised godless in this country? Who is going to demonstrate the life of Christ to people who don't care? Who is going to take the love of God to whole communities that have been raised in religious systems that do not know Christ? The answer is ordinary human beings who don't feel strong enough, but who do know how to pray, who do rely on the Holy Spirit, and know in their hearts that they are beloved children of God. That's who. Let's not miss out. Let's be part of it. Amen.